Please turn to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 2. As you turn there, I want to invite those of you who are newer to our church, who are considering perhaps being a part of our church, to uh, consider coming to our new, co- our, uh, new members class, Discovering Bethany, this Saturday from 9 to 11. I'd love to have you come and be a part of that. As you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2, remember we talked about last week, we're beginning a new series called The Covenant King as we study First and Second Samuel, or, or Samuel. Uh, one story here, and we're in the first section of Samuel. We're looking at chapters 1 through 8 of 1 Samuel as we see the people demanding a king like the nations. That's these, these first eight chapters. The people are going to reject God as their, as their leader, as their shepherd, and demand a king, a, a king that God had said they could have, and instead of having a king like the king that he, that he said they could have, they want a king that's just like the nations in terms of goals and, and temperament and uh, allegiance. So as you think about uh, going through Samuel, oftentimes we're going to cover some larger sections of, of Samuel. But this week, and I'm, I'm gone next week and the week after that, I'll, I'll be here. Uh, but So this week and in two weeks, we're going to be looking at chapter 2. That's a lot slower than we're going to be going. So you're going to be wanting to, to read ahead as, as we study this. And already some of you have talked to me this morning about anticipation of what God would do in your life through this and, and some things you've been doing to prepare your hearts and just commend that to all of us. 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 11 together this morning. If, if you would, stand with me in honor of the Lord as we read his word together. Verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Verse 11, Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. You may be seated. May God encourage and strengthen us through the reading of his word this morning. Father, we are mindful that you have given us a king in your son Jesus, that you reign over all. And we submit our hearts to you this morning as we think about 
our nation. And this, this week, we do submit our, ourselves to you, trusting your good and kind providence for your people, uh, trusting in, in wherever you would lead us. We pray that our, our nation would uh, turn to you. We pray that we would see revival. We, we pray that revival, uh, the renewal would begin in our own hearts as we repent and humble ourselves before you. We pray this in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. Some years ago, I, I found out that my mom had a ministry to young women in the church who were struggling with their children, uh, which at first I thought sounded like a, a really sweet thing. But then I found out how she was encouraging these women. Uh, she was encouraging these women by talking about how bad I had been <laughs> as a child. And then ending with, and now he's a pastor, uh, which... I wasn't sure to be complimented or to be a little bit concerned, but uh, uh, there it was. Now, uh, honestly, of course, my, my mother uh, did endure a lot, uh, but th- this isn't about my brother um, or brothers. Or, uh, this is about me. And, and there were uh, two instructions as my as I think about crediting my mom with uh, the revival of her children. Uh, there were two instructions that I can remember my mom giving me when I was growing up that really struck fear in my heart. Uh, the first was one time when she quoted Proverbs 30:17 to me. Uh, Proverbs 30:17, of course, says, "The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a, a mother will be plucked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures." <laughs> and I knew that I had an eye that was a little bit didn't always obey mom, and so when I was a young kid, I really watched out for ravens and stayed away from valleys, right? Uh, the other, the other counsel that she gave me was, I remember on the way to church one time, she, she warned me, this when I was a little bit older, she warned me, she said, look, you, you better humble yourself or the Lord will humble you. Humble yourself or God will humble you. And I can remember thinking, just with, you know, how? Uh, what sort of things might God do to, to humble me? Because I knew I was arrogant. I wasn't obeying my mother. I wasn't respectful the way that I needed to be. And the idea of God humbling rightly struck fear in my heart. Now, there were some things about God's character I didn't fully understand at that time. I was, I was living in dread and, and fear of, of God's correction, and, and mom's counsel, of course, was good, biblical, it was effective. But there was also some things about God's character that I didn't quite grasp in the way that I needed to as I, I tried to heed her warnings. And specifically, the, the truth that God is a God who loves me, and his discipline is loving. In other words, the, the discipline of the Lord should always be welcomed by his children. The, the humility that he, he works to bring about is done sometimes in hard, but always ultimately in kind ways. That's, and that's something about God's character that I didn't fully grasp, and I think it's hard for you and I to grasp as well, isn't it? I mean, we know there are people in our life who want to humble us. Maybe you have a supervisor at work, and uh, the supervisor thinks that you are just a little bit too arrogant, and, and maybe you are, maybe you aren't, but the, the supervisor is going to do some things to not just humble you, but humiliate you. He's going to say some things in meetings, kind of, kind of in, a, in a condescending way to, to belittle you in, in the eyes of other people. There's going to be emails that, 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 that humiliate you. There's going to be gossip, perhaps, that the supervisor spreads about you in order to make you not look as good in the eyes of your fellow co-workers. They're, they're trying to humble you, but 
with a desire to glorify themselves, not really caring what it does to you. This is not how God's humbling of us works. God's humbling is a, is a loving humbling, a, a desire to bring us to a point where we can receive his grace. There's a book that I'm reading right now, and it's one of those books that I'm embarrassed to say that I'm reading because it's a book a pastor is supposed to have already read. I mean, the book's been around for 400 years. It's a very famous book. It's called The Bruised Reed by Richard Sibbs. And in this book, Sibbs explores Isaiah 42.3. Isaiah 42.3, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. A reed is a very fragile type of plant life, and, and God isn't going to take a a breed that's rused and, and just break it. He's not going to take one of his children and just break them. But he might be the cause of the bruising. In fact, he might appoint hardship for the reed, for the believer, in his kindness. And, and here's what Reed writes, and this is so good. If, if you like the book Gentle and Lowly, you would love the bruised reed. It's, it's very, very profound, very, very kind. Here's what Reed, here's what Sibs writes. He says, after conversion, we need bruising so that reeds may know themselves to be reeds and not oaks. Even reeds need bruising by reason of the remainder of pride in our nature and to let us see that we live by mercy. Isn't that a beautiful thing? We're reeds, and God in his kindness is going to bruise us to remind us, hey, you are a reed, not an oak. You need my mercy to live. God's bruising is not crushing. He doesn't quench the, the flame of, of faith or the, or the little moldering wick of faith. The reality is that God, as he bruises reeds, also brings them to a point where they can be more secure. Sibs would go on to say, God is doing it, when we see a, a person who's going through a time of hardship, sometimes our, our temptation is to judge that person, but he says, but God in that person is doing a gracious, good work with them. It is no easy matter to bring a man from nature to grace and from grace to glory. Why is it so hard to bring a person from nature to grace, grace to glory, it's hard because of the unyielding and intractable, how unyielding and intractable are our hearts and our pride. We need humility. We need humility to request God's grace. The proud man does not ask for directions and gets lost. That The proud student doesn't ask for help on their, their studies and fails the test the person who is proud spiritually does not turn to the Lord in his mercy and does not receive his salvation. Here's the main idea that I want us to think about this morning as we look at Hannah's prayer here. Submit to the kind king who will bring down the proud and exalt the lowly. As we look at 
Hannah's prayer here, this is the theme. We want to submit to the very kind king who's going to bring down the the proud and is going to exalt the lowly. This is a God who brings about reversals. As we look through this passage, what I hope happens are a few things. First of all, I hope that we see the danger of our pride, that that Scripture's testimony is is so clear. There is a danger to our pride. Pride will lead to our destruction. I I hope as we look at this passage, we will see the the power and the authority of God's anointed King Jesus and, and be humbled in that way. And then we would cling to God, that we would turn to him in his kindness to save us. We're going to look at at three encouragements from this passage, and here's the the first one as we look at Hannah's prayer. Number one, we want to beware of pride. We want to beware of pride. In verses one through three, we encounter three truths about God that the proud person doesn't know. These are three truths about God that the person in their pride can't acknowledge or can't see to be true. So look at verses one through three. You're gonna, we're gonna be in our text a lot. Uh, honestly, I was telling Whitney this week, I am not really good at understanding poetry, and it's hard for me to, to teach poetic portions of scripture. So uh, hang with me here. It requires a, a little bit of, of, of careful reading as we look at the text. But look here, as we, we talk about the, the danger of pride, there's three truths about God that the, the proud person doesn't know. The first one is this, the, that the proud person is in danger because they don't realize that true joy only comes from God. Look at verse 1. As we look at verse 1, we see Hannah saying four things about herself. She says, my heart exalts my strength is exalted. Three, my, my mouth derides my enemies. Four, I rejoice in your salvation. The, the proud person is in danger because they don't recognize that true joy comes only from God. And this is what Hannah, as she talks about her own testimony here, tells us again and again. My, my joy is found in God. This word exalts, uh, it occurs throughout these 10 verses, or a similar word, exalts, exalted here in verse 1, that the same word is used in verse 7 and translated exalts, it's used in verse 7 and translated lifted up, it occurs over and over again in this passage. She says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. Horn is a symbol of, of strength. Some translations may even say strength there. The horn was, was seen as the, the, the symbolic strength of an animal, and so here it's, it's used as this idea of strength, and she says, my, my strength is lifted up in the, in the Lord. We see this again in verse 10. She says, my mouth derides my enemies. And as I look to the Lord and I find my joy in him, my mouth is deriding my enemies. You may read that and think, man, she really doesn't like Peninnah, right? But, but there's more to it than that. She's talking about plural enemies, not just enemies of her, but those who would exalt themselves against the Lord. And she says, I rejoice in your salvation. Salvation is found Joy is found only in God. And the first thing that Hannah says in these first three verses is, look, the, 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 the proud person is in danger because they don't recognize that true joy comes only in God. Remember what Jeremiah says? In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, the Lord says, My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hooed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so you can imagine this, this desert climate. There's a, a cistern that would be dug out and, and caked with limestone, and, and uh, whenever there's rain, they would collect in these, in these cisterns, and in a pinch, it could do for some water, right? 
But here's a, a broken cistern, and it's just sludge at the bottom. And, and here's this, this living fountain, and a person can either drink from this fountain, this, this, these living waters, or they can kind of slurp the sludge out of the cistern. And God has said, the people have abandoned me, the, 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 the fountain, the, the water, the fresh water, and they've, they're just slurping sludge. True joy is, is only found in God, and, and the, the proud person is in danger for not realizing it. Here's how else we need to be aware of pride. She says in verse 2 that the proud person is in danger because they don't realize that complete security is only found in God. Look at verse 2 and notice the, the three things that it, that it tells us here, the, the three ways in which it shows God's uniqueness. First of all, there's none holy like the Lord. There's none holy like the Lord. There's no rival in holiness that God has. You, you never meet a person who says, you know what, that, that person, they're just like, they're almost as holy as God. You've never said that. You've never encountered someone like that. But last week in, in Sunday school class, uh, Blake was, was talking about God's holiness, and he used this phrase. He said, God is, is infinite in his holiness. And, and that, that phrase kind of stuck with me all week, that the idea that God's holiness is, is infinite. There's, there's no one holy like the Lord. Look at verse 2. Not only is there none holy like the Lord, there's none besides you. There, there's no one who is rivaling God in his being. The third thing Hannah says here is there's no rock like our God. There's, there's no other place in which we can find security. Because God is infinite in his holiness, there's no rival in his being. There's nowhere else that we can find security. When you come to the end of Samuel and 2 Samuel, you have this, 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 these, uh, psalm, this psalm of, of Hannah here at the beginning of 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel ends with two psalms of David. It has this same imagery of, of God being a rock. 2 Samuel 22, 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, says David. So, the proud person is in danger. They're in danger because they don't realize that true joy only comes in God. They're in danger because they don't realize that complete security is only found in God. And verse 3 tells us that the proud person is also in danger because they don't realize that perfect knowledge is only found in God. Look at verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not your arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord, Yahweh, is a God of knowledge. Don't be proud because only God has perfect knowledge and understanding. There's nothing that God doesn't know. There's no limit to his knowledge. When I was young, I would uh, play Trivial Pursuit sometimes with my dad, and I was always amazed how good he was at Trivial Pursuit. I mean, he knew when the answer was like Richard Nixon, he knew it. He knew all these things about the, the 60s and the 70s, and I was just so amazed at his knowledge. And then I became a parent, and started playing Trivial Pursuit with my kids. And I realized it's not that my dad, it's not just that my dad was really smart. He was also really old, right? <laughs> and so now I know a lot of things about the, the, these, this decade called the 80s and the 90s. Like, I, I know these things about these ancient presidents, Reagan and Bush and Clinton, you know. God knows things. He has perfect knowledge. He, he, there's no limit to the time that, that he's experienced. He, he's, he knows all moments of, of history. In fact, God has had an infinite amount of time 
to consider every millisecond of your existence and the existence of the entire universe. God has had an infinite amount of time not just to know the the milliseconds of your existence, but all the potential milliseconds of your existence and all the potential milliseconds of the universe's existence. God's knowledge is, is infinite. There's no end to the things that he knows. And not only does he know all things, but, but look at the end of verse 3. It says, the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. And so not only does God have perfect understanding, but he has the ability to weigh and rightly apply all of that knowledge. We all know smart people who have no common sense, right? God has perfect knowledge, he's infinite as intelligence, and yet he also knows how to perfectly weigh that which is good and bad. The foolish person in their pride is in danger because they don't understand. Look, perfect knowledge is only found in God. You can't rely upon yourself and your own knowledge because compared to there's really no comparison to how small your knowledge is in comparison to God's infinite knowledge. Beware of pride, Hannah tells us. You say, well, good news, I'm not proud. <laughs> right. Get to the next point. Let's just be careful, right? Pride doesn't just mean we, we consciously think good thoughts about ourselves. It's more than, than just thinking that we're the best. Let me give you a couple of of warning signs of pride here as we think about a a point of application here. One sign of pride is you're defensive. You're defensive whenever others correct you or or you just outright refuse to receive correction. Proverbs 15, 32 and 33, whoever ignores instruction despises himself But he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. And and you say, well, that's not me. Look, just, just be careful. Because it's very possible that right now, maybe your husband here and your wife is praying, oh, Lord, please let him be listening right now. Your Your kids oh, Lord, please let Dad be listening to this. He's defensive. He won't receive correction. He's proud. Maybe you're proud and, and, and it and manifests, in, manifests itself in this way. You, 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 fail to consider that, uh, you fail to consider God when making decisions about life. Maybe you're young and you think, okay, I've got all this life ahead of me and and maybe I'll do this and maybe I'll do that and maybe I'll go this direction and maybe I'll go this direction. And and all those things are are nice things to think about, but as you do it, there's no thought of God in your planning. And what what does God's word tell us? The psalmist says in Psalm 10.4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. That's the thought of a proud person. Maybe you're confident in your abilities and, and planning, and, and you're, you're like the Edomites in Obadiah verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? You're, you're confident in your abilities, you're confident in your planning. There's no thought of, of if the Lord wills, as James says, we'll do this or that. Maybe you're, you're proud in this way. Maybe you believe yourself so vital to the family, so vital to your church, so vital to your job, and, and you, you have the thought, look, uh, no one can do this without me. 
What do you have, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, that you did not receive? And if you've received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Maybe your, maybe your pride manifests itself in this way. Maybe it manifests itself in, in just desiring attention. You want people to be focused on you. And you're surprised whenever people don't desire your wisdom. You, you, you talk too much. Besides in sermons, that's okay, right? Uh, that's, no, but, but even in, in those, right? Jonathan Edwards would say this, people often tend to act in a, a special manner as though others ought to take great notice in regard of them. That's, that, what is that? That's our pride. Pride manifests itself in ways that may surprise us. Beware of pride. Here's the second truth that we see in Hannah's prayer. We want to contemplate truths that humble. So we recognize this, this danger in pride. What do we do? Well, now Hannah gives us, she says, this is dangerous. It's, it's dangerous to not find your security in God. It's dangerous to, to think uh, high, more highly of yourself. It's danger not, dangerous not to look to God for perfect knowledge. Now, here's some, here's some truths that really just bring us to our knees before God or, or should kind of two things I want you to notice in these verses, verses 4 through 8. First of all, notice this. Number one, great reversals happen frequently. Reversals happen all the time in human existence. Look at verses 4 and 5. We, we see six of them. Verse 4, notice this. The, the powerful become weak, and the weak become powerful in verse 4. It says, the bows of the mighty are broken. So you have these, these mighty warriors, and all of a sudden the, the bows are broken. And then you have the, the feeble, and suddenly the, the feeble have strength. Then verse 5, the first part of verse 5 has another, powerful become weak, weak become powerful. Beginning of verse 5, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. So there's a reversal. There's this person who has all this, this food. They're all full, and suddenly they don't have food, and they're having to hire themselves out, not just for wages, but just for, for bread to eat. And then there's another reversal. The weak becomes powerful. Those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. There's a reversal. And then another reversal. Here it's the, the weak become powerful and the powerful become weak. The barren has been born seven, but she who has many children is now forlorn. Great reversals happen all the time. Upsets happen all the time. Many of you mourn some college football games yesterday. Great reversals happen all the time. You think about the military conquest. Great reversals happen all the time. Think about uh, uh, Vladimir Putin as, he, as the, the Russians went into Ukraine. We're not, he wasn't expecting what took place militarily. Great reversals happen all the time. Why? Well, that's the second truth we see here. God's providence determines all things. God's providence determines all things. Look at, look at verses 6 through 8 and, and see what happens here. There's a, a literary device called a, a merism. You know what a merism is? Maybe I'm saying that word wrong. But a merism is like whenever there's, there's, two ex, there's like a spectrum and each end of the, the spectrum is referenced, meaning not just these two things, but these two things and everything else in between. So for example, uh, maybe you're like me, and you lose your keys frequently. And you have to, 
your your wife sees you running around and and she says what are you doing and you have to say well I'm looking for my keys again and uh, and she says well where have you looked and you say well I, I've looked high and low I've looked high and low both ends of the extreme now that doesn't mean I just first of all checked all the book, tops of the bookshelves and then checked the ground that no, means I've been looking all over the place so look at these extremes uh, about God's about what God does and it means not just the extremes but everything in between look at verse six. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. That doesn't mean he just kills and, and brings about life. It means that he, he does everything in between. He's in charge of, of all aspects of our being, us coming into existence, us leaving this world, and all of our, our health in between. Verse 7, he makes poor and he makes rich and everything in between. He brings low and he exalts and everything in between. God's providence is what? infinite. There's no, there's no area of your life that he doesn't have power over. What should that produce? Humility. Look at verse 8. Here's the foundation of his providence. It says, he raises up the poor. You're not talking about exalting here. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes to inherit a seat of honor. He, 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 he bring, there's reversal there. He takes the low and he sets them high. Why? The pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. There is no, there's no corner of your life over which God does not reign supreme. What should that cause? Humility. Humility. Break away from your pride. Cry out to God for his mercy. Because you and I are not the kings and queens we think we are. I've mentioned before a science fiction series, uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And there's this, there's this thing called the Total Perspective Vortex in this science fiction series. And ultimately, it turns out to be kind of a, a, a torture device. What happens in the, t- the total perspective vortex is you, you go into this room, and in this room, it shows you the infinite scope of the universe. And then it shows a little dot that says, you are here. And the idea is that no one can comprehend how tiny they are, and, and a person who does grasp that loses their mind as they consider how small and insignificant they are. I was thinking about that picture this, this last week. I went to a website called Scale of the Universe. You can go to scaleoftheuniverse.com, not now, uh, later, you know, scaleoftheuniverse.com, and, and, and there's something very interesting that it does. It, it allows you to kind of to start off like looking at a basketball, and then you can first of all kind of zoom out and, and see the comparative sizes of things. So you see a basketball next to a human being and see how small a basketball is compared to a human being. And then you kind of zoom out, and now there's a human being sitting next to the Statue of Liberty. You can barely see the human being anymore. And then you zoom out some more, and, and all of a sudden you're looking at Rhode Island, and you can't see the Statue of, the Statue of Liberty is now non-existent. And then you go out further, and, and, and California, you see California, and, and Rhode Island is gone. And then you zoom out further than that, and so, suddenly you're, you're dealing with the the, the size of things, your mind just kind of says, yeah, I'm done. I, I've checked out. I'm just really, really big. I get it, right? So, for example, you, you see the, a, a star that's so big that it could consume the sun and the earth all at the same time and everything in between. You're like, that, I, I don't understand that. And that's just 
That's just tiny things as you get into the, the galactic scale and all of that, right? And then, oh, this, this is fun. Then you start zooming in. You go to this website and you start zooming in and, and you're, you're able to, to go into really tiny details and you start seeing how small things are. And again, you go, okay, my brain is done. I get it. Some things are very, very small. Psychologists talk about the, the concept of awe and how it can sometimes be very overwhelming. There's something called cosmic horror, this idea that, that human beings can't deal with the terrifying vistas of reality. In fact, uh, one psychologist or some psychologists have said this, awe, the idea of awe, contemplating the vastness of, of something, can have potential negative aspects, such as a sense of being unable to understand or accommodate the source of awe, particularly when induced by frightening phenomena that elicit feelings of powerlessness. Power, powerlessness. In other words, they say thinking about how big the universe is can really hurt your self-esteem. To which we say as Christians, what? Amen. The psalmist says this, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man? What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? This is a good thing for us as those who understand where our sense of awe does come from. It comes from our Creator. And the Gospel tells us this good news. We are powerless. God is infinite. And in His infinite holiness, He has condescended to save us. Do we understand it? Hardly. Are we humbled by it? Absolutely. What does it bring us to? It brings us to worship. And that brings us to the third thing of Hannah's prayer that I want us to think about this morning. Submit to the anointed king. We're in danger. We are in danger because of our pride. We don't recognize our frailty. We don't recognize our, our insecurity. And we're in danger because we've offended an infinite and an infinitely holy God. So what does Hannah tell us? How do we make sure we're safe? She says this, He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. We want to be, we must be the faithful ones. These are those who are the humble. They're, they're friends of God. We can't be the wicked. It says the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. There's, there's no way that you and I in our own strength can achieve the, the holiness or the goodness to stand before the God of whom we are an enemy apart from his grace. The adversaries, verse 10, tell us very clearly, verse 10 tells us very clearly what happens to the adversaries of the Lord. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. And then it, it talks about God's judgment. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. There's, there's no corner of the earth to which you can escape and say, this is no longer the Lord's jurisdiction. He will give strength to his king. He will, there's the word horn again, exalt the horn of his. And then there's this interesting word. His anointed 
that word anointed, Mashiach, Messiah, the Christ. There's something very beautiful here in verse 10. We don't have to find ourselves under God's judgment. If we are in submission to the anointed, to the Messiah, we're part of the group that's exalted. It's very interesting that this this psalm, this prayer of Hannah takes place at the beginning of the book of Samuel. Here's what I think that the writer of Samuel is telling us. Look, the book of Samuel is going to be full full of, of reversals. The guy who looks like a great king is going to turn out to be a skunk. And this, this little shepherd boy that's of such no account that his dad doesn't even bring him to, to see Samuel, he's going to be the anointed one. He's going to be the one that, that God makes a covenant with. There, it's a beautiful picture. And what, what should take place as we go through the book of Samuel is there should be a desire to humble ourselves as well and, and to yearn for this anointed one because he, here's the sad deal. We're going to encounter, again, this is the time where the, king, the people are desiring a king like the nations. They're going to get a king like the nations. Not going to be all that great. And then they're going to get this, this better king. But even as we look at the better king, we're going to see that he's not the ultimate king. He's not the ultimate anointed one. He's not the Messiah. And so even as we come to the end of the book of Samuel, we're going to be yearning for our true king. Brothers and sisters, this is what should happen in our hearts as we come to the end of Hannah's prayer here. We should desire this king. We should behold his beauty and submit to him and worship him. Zechariah 9.10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. How can we be a, a part of that kingdom? Only by throwing ourselves on his mercy. Behold, here's the application, behold here the king and the beauty of his reign. As you see Saul, and even as you see David, yearn for a better king and submit to him. In fact, here's a further application. Let the human frailties of our leaders draw us to to yearn more and more for our one true king. This Tuesday, we have an election coming up, right? And I think it is entirely fine and and good to want to elect the best possible leaders, right? That's a good thing. It's a God-given desire to have good leaders. And and I'm going to be watching it probably as closely as anyone in here, right? I get get kind of into those things. But don't don't kid ourselves, right? There's a couple dangers. We don't want to confuse even the best of our human leaders with this ultimate king who's coming. Even the The best of men are men at best, right? Even the best men and women who will occupy these offices are are simply human beings. And then my encouragement to us as Christians would be to be, as we think about our, our witness and looking for the anointed one, to be especially careful, to be especially careful as we make the difficult decision at times to to vote for candidates who are 
who are proudly exhibiting the deeds of the flesh. We may, we may come to a point in our culture, we can come to a point in our culture, honestly, where sometimes you say, okay, there's, there's this candidate and there's this candidate, and this candidate is, is proudly exhibiting the deeds of the flesh. I'm going to vote for them because this alternative is better than this alternative. But, hey, let's not kid ourselves. These deeds of the flesh are very concerning. We are going to be voting for candidates who, are, who, who, are, who revel sometimes in fleshly behavior, who are, who are at times contentious, self-willed, reveling in controversies, slanderous in their attacks and their opponents, arrogant. All the deeds of the flesh we see in Galatians 5, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, fits of, rang- uh, of, of anger, rivalries, strife, jealousies, and we're going to vote for them. But don't kid ourselves. There will be consequences, right? There are consequences to a nation. There are consequences to a community for having rulers like these. And all we can do is cry out to God and say, look, God, this is what we must do. We're trusting in you. Please be merciful. Please bring us your anointed one. So vote Tuesday, but only once. And as a sojourner, and as a sojourner, say, look, Lord, this is, this is what we believe we must do, but, but come quickly, Lord Jesus, King Jesus. And as we behold that the frailty of our human leaders, we don't get angry, we don't exhibit the deeds of the flesh, we, we look with hope. We say, God, thank you that these, are not, thank you that these people are not my, my ultimate king. Thank you that you have provided your son Jesus to whom I ultimately submit. And, and, and the, the frailties of these human leaders draw us more and more to the beauty of our Savior and cause us to submit with more and more joy. Submit, we see in Samuel. Submit to the anointed one, the Messiah, the King who's coming. Believer, God is preparing you and perhaps God is bruising you even this morning to cause you to, to in humility, to look away from yourself, to look away from, from other human beings and to look to, upon him and his beauty to, to be able to worship him forever. And we don't always welcome that bruising process, but we say we trust in our Lord who brings it. We welcome his kind bruising as we submit to the kind king who will bring down the proud and exalt the humble, exalt the lowly. So we ask that God would make us humble. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would do what is necessary this morning in our lives. Bruise us in your kindness. Do what it takes to, to, to break away, to, to cause us to break away from our self-sufficiency, from our pride, from our arrogance, so that we can behold you and, and cling to you for our salvation. Father, if there are those this morning who have not trusted in your son, Jesus Christ, for eternal life, we, we pray that you would break them in their pride even now as, as we're praying, that they would, they would see that the beauty of your Savior and, and receive eternal life by placing their faith in, in him alone. And, and Father, we recognize that even those of us who are converted continue to need humbling. We need to be reminded that we are reeds and not oaks, that we live by your mercy alone. Thank you for your kindness. 
Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.